0: morning. How's everybody doing? So glad to hear it. You guys are awesome. You know, uh, children are a wonderful gift from the Lord, amen? They can be a great blessing in our lives. I, I, I certainly know mine, mine have. But they can also, You're a parent, you know this, if you're not, you will. They can also cause much sorrow. Just the other night, Christine and I found ourselves awake at three in the morning, not knowing where one of our wonderful adult children was. I won't say which one, but he—I mean he or she—had turned his phone off to go to a movie, and then was hanging out with some friends. I found this out later. I didn't know any of this, playing video games. Three in the morning. Who would do that? But Christine and I had no idea where he or she, well, he, we got it. Video games kind of gave it away, where he was. So you can imagine the panic and sorrow that filled our, our hearts. You can imagine the prayers that were being said and the psalms that were being read. That's what we were sitting in the bed praying and reading psalms. In many ways, that moment was a, a test of our faith. I was asking myself, would I trust in God no matter what happened to my son? Having been a father for almost 25 years, I found that God continues to use my children to challenge me to grow in my, my faith. Parents, amen? We got that. It's true for me. It's true for you. And it's true for Father Abraham. As we've seen in our study of, of Abraham, he was clearly a man of faith. He was devoted to God. But we've seen him in his moments of weakness as well, right? Both in chapter 12, right at the, at the beginning with the Egyptians, and most recently in chapter 20 with the Philistines, we saw Abraham's fear, fear that someone would kill him and, and in order that they could take his wife Sarah, This caused him to try to pass her off as his sister. Instead of taking his fear to the Lord, he demonstrates his lack of faith by trying to save his own skin with his own strategy. As Tom put it a couple weeks ago, he relied on his default settings. He went back to to what he could do instead of trusting in the Lord. Probably Abraham's greatest failure, it's well known, Failure to trust in God occurred when he he gave in to his wife Sarah's plan to help God fulfill that that promise of an heir, of a descendant, of a child. Abraham agreed to take Sarah's servant Hagar as a wife. This demonstrated a lack of faith in God's promise, in God's word. Not to mention the fact that it was an abdication of his role as, as the head of the family, as the leader. And that weakness produced... A son. And today we'll see that 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 weakness will have painful, sorrowful consequences in Abraham's life. One of the things I hope we're getting out of this study of Abraham, as we see him demonstrate both great faith and experience great failures, is that like you and I, Abraham is in process, he was a believer a man of faith. Paul calls him the father of the faithful. Remember Genesis 15, 16. We spent some time there. He, he, Abraham, believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Because of his faith, God declared him to be righteous. And as a man of faith, Abraham is, is subject to the sovereign Lord working in his life, growing his faith, renewing and refining him, transforming him into the man that God wants him to be. And to do that, God worked through Abraham's life, through the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the good and the bad and the ugly. This is what the God of grace does in the lives of his children. He uses every opportunity, get that, every opportunity to grow our faith, our trust in him as believers, and I hope we are, Saved by grace through faith, God will work in our lives. God will use the joys and sorrows of our lives to transform us into the image of his son. Get that. God will use both the joys and the sorrows, the good times, the bad times, to transform us into the image of his son. God will even command us You might find this hard to believe. We'll talk about it. God will even command us to do very difficult things, uncomfortable things, things that might even cause us pain and suffering. Why? Because he's concerned not just for our experience in that moment. He's concerned for the kind of person that we are, the kind of person that we're becoming. As we come to chapter 21 of Genesis, we'll see God continue to work in Abraham's life. We'll see Abraham face two very different circumstances. And both will involve a son. The first will be one of great joy, and the second, one of great sorrow. And God will, in the midst of both of these circumstances... Work in Abraham's life. Work to grow Abraham's faith. And in many ways, God will prepare Abraham for that ultimate test that's coming to his life. That test will come in chapter 22. Abraham didn't have chapters of his life. I'm I'm referring to when we'll get to it. That ultimate test will come a, a number of years later. We'll get to it next week probably in chapter 22. As Abraham is commanded by God... To the, do the, the most difficult thing imaginable. To sacrifice his own son. The son that will be, bring him so much joy today. But before God takes Abraham through that, that great test of faith, he must first be prepared. And today, we'll see part of Abraham's preparation. Abraham's being prepared the whole way. From that day when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees to this very day today. Abraham is being prepared. And that preparation comes in the form today, what we'll look at today in chapter 21 of, of joy and sorrow in, the, in what I've titled The Tale of Two Sons. The first son is Isaac. And we see the joy of Isaac's deliver, delivery. The joy of Isaac's delivery. This passage, chapter 21, opens on an awesome high note. This is what Abraham, this is what Sarah have been waiting for. Listen, verse twenty verse one, chapter twenty-one. The Lord visited Sarah as he said he, as he had said. Remember, a year prior, I think this is back in chapter 19, God had come and he had promised, I'm coming back in a year. Within a year, Sarah is going to conceive and give birth. And the Lord said to Sarah, as he had promised. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. This is it. This is the big day. Up to this point, Abraham's most difficult trial in life had been waiting. Waiting. It had been 25 years Since the promise was given. 25 years of enduring the pain of an unfulfilled promise. But the waiting is over. Sarah, now 90 years old, gives birth to the child of promise. Great rejoicing must have taken place in the household of Abraham. Great worship and and praise of God who had proven faithful to his word. God's faithfulness is stressed three times... In these first two verses, we don't want to miss it. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham's faith had to be exploding. New heights were reached. He now knew that God was faithful in every detail of his word. The birth of his son, to his barren, up to that point, wife, was clear, undisputable validation of God's promise. Way back in Genesis 12, 25 years ago, prior to this, God had promised that Abraham would be a a great nation. He had promised him a a land. He had promised him a, a great name. And he had promised that through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed and for those promises to be fulfilled Abraham had to have an heir a descendant a son God had said that that heir would come through Sarah and now God miraculously fulfills his promise a 90 year old mother and her baby stand as a testimony to God's faithfulness A testimony to God keeping his promise. Abraham can now be sure that all of God's promises will be fulfilled. That his descendants would become a a great nation in that promised land. that That his name would be great. That his reputation would be known. And that ultimately all the nations on the earth would be blessed through him. The waiting is over. The promise is fulfilled. And in verse Three ...through five we read... ...Abraham called the name of his son... ...who was born to him... ...whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac... ...when he was eight days old... ...as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old... ...when his son Isaac was born to him. Abraham at a hundred years old... ...recalls and obeys the Lord's word. God had given Abraham... ...a sign of the covenant. You remember the sign in chapter 17 of Genesis... Every child of the covenant was to be circumcised at eight days old. So so Abraham's baby boy is circumcised. Really, Isaac is the first recorded circumcision of an eight-day-old. Remember, Abraham and his household were circumcised when when the covenant was given back in chapter 17. Isaac, laughter was his name. Abraham and Sarah had laughed, remember, when God had promised them a son. In response to Abraham's laughter, God had told him his son's name would be Isaac, which means laughter. So Abraham obeys the Lord and names the child Isaac. Isaac, laughter, would, be a, would, would serve as a, a living reminder of both Abraham's doubt and God's faithfulness. But his name would would also reflect the joy God brought into their lives at his birth. Sarah makes that clear with her joy-filled words. Listen in verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. There was laughter everywhere. The old man and his wife laughed and continued to laugh as, as they held that, that tiny laughter in their arms. Baby Isaac certainly cooed a little a little laughter. I could imagine that. The camp chuckled out loud. Wow, there were probably many in the in the household. Remember Abraham? It wasn't just him and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. Tramp. It was they had a whole company of people. You could imagine. Wow, it happened. It's a miracle. Heaven must have smiled. The waiting was over. The true heir of the Abrahamic covenant had been born. The true heir of the covenant that ends with all the nations would be blessed. This is sort of the the first step. The thing that had to occur for the nations to be blessed. It's happened. God had kept his word. And both Abraham and Sarah, Sarah, filled with joy, grew in faith. From the beginning... Abraham believed God. That's why he left Ur in the first place. God came and called him and he believed. And we've seen Abraham's faith grow along the way. It grew as he he gave Lot the choice of which way to go. You choose whichever land. I'm okay. God will take care of me. It grew when he went after Lot. When Lot was captured by those four kings, went after Lot and rescued him. He took his men after these four kings. Remember the four kings that had devastated the rest of the land conquered many cities Abraham and his band went after him it grew when he was blessed by Melchizedek when he rejected the offer of the king of Sodom but now Abraham had lived to see that that promise of God fulfilled as he held Isaac in his arms his faith grew it grew I believe to unwavering belief how do I know that because of what Abraham is able to do, both in the rest of this chapter that we're going to see, and ultimately what takes place in chapter 22. Abraham has reached, maybe if you read in, in Hebrews chapter 11, where it really highlights the faith of Abraham, no negatives implied, Abraham is, is, is reaching that point now, in his faith walk with the Lord. This story demonstrates that God works in the joys of our life. He works to increase our faith by fulfilling his promises. Maybe you've seen that in, in your life. God has fulfilled promises and, and your faith just gets that, that extra extra bump, extra jump. When, when Christine and I left for Thailand, we, we believed that God had promised us that he would use us to bring Thai people into his kingdom. We trusted the promises in his word, like like 1 Corinthians 3, 6, where Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We trusted that God would give the growth. We trusted if we faithfully planted, if if we watered the seeds with, with his word, that God would cause the growth, that God would cause Thai people, in our case, to give their lives to Jesus Christ. When we got on the plane, we believed It would happen. We trusted. We had faith. But let me tell you, kind of like Abraham leaving Ur. There were many moments along the way, many moments of doubt. I don't think I actually laughed at the possibility, but I certainly came close. As I studied the language, as it became clear to Christine and I that we sucked. Sorry, can I say that in church? I did. We sucked at language learning. We just were not good at it. Others were were much better. And we came up, and as we did get some of the language, and we came up against difficult people, difficult circumstances, as we began to share the gospel in our limited way, people didn't seem interested. Our faith was put to the test. God, did you really promise this? But we continued planning, we continued watering. And praise God, we didn't have to wait 25 years to see the promise fulfilled. You know, Abraham had to wait those 25 years to see the son born. And if you read some, some missions history, there are, it's oftentimes there are missionaries that go into these groups and they have to wait long, long periods of time before anyone comes to Christ. Fortunately for us, it was just a couple years. As we began to see God cause growth in the lives of Thai people, as some came to faith in, in Jesus Christ, this new sense of unwavering belief, God, you did it. Through our limitations, in our weakness, you were strong. This unwavering belief began to grow in us. Began to, and we began to do other things that, that, that we wouldn't have imagined, enabled us to continue on in ministry. I would just ask you to reflect on the promises that God has fulfilled in your life. Maybe you can't think of them now. Jot a note down. Think about this. What has God promised me and and is fulfilled? I, I would ask you to remember the joys that that brings into your life. Has he met your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? Has he answered your prayers ever? Or at least told you why your prayers weren't quite what they needed to be? Gave you new direction in prayer? Has he given you guidance and direction and strength in your life? Has he given you comfort and peace in difficult times? These are things he promises. And ultimately, has he given you a savior to die in your place? Has he promised you and and will fulfill that gift of eternal life? These are just a few of the the promises that God has, has given those who trust in him. And as he fulfills these promises, our faith grows. It turns into unwavering belief. But, but let me warn you, if you don't know already, as your faith grows, so often do your tests, those tests of faith. And sometimes those tests can be difficult. We'll see that next week in the life of Abraham as he faces the greatest test of faith possible. But even before he's commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac, he's commanded to do something that that for Abraham was probably just as difficult. That's our second, as we move from joy to sorrow, the sorrow of Ishmael's departure. We've been talking about laughter and, and joy and God fulfilling his promises and how exciting that is and how that builds us up in our faith and all that's true. But we even need to remember that Abraham had two sons. We've just seen the birth of that second son, Isaac. But his firstborn son's name was Ishmael. Remember Ishmael? Ishmael was born from Abraham's union with Sarah's Egyptian maidservant, Hagar. As we looked at that a number of weeks ago, we saw that this union... This coming together, Abraham taking Hagar as a wife, was not God's plan. And the offspring it produced would not, could not, be the heir to God's promises. If Ishmael didn't understand that already, it became clear when Isaac was born. Verse 8. And the child, Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now by verse 8, we know that at least three years have passed. Since Isaac's birth. So from verse 7 to 8, we got about three years going on. Because that's the traditional time for weaning a child. It, was, it took a little longer back in the day in that ancient Israel. Isaac was, was a, probably a toddler. Isaac was a toddler. And Ishmael was probably about 16 years old. Notice the, the new instance here of, of laughter. You have a NIV. You'll notice it's a different word. It's, it's, it's mocking. That's how the NIV... Trend. Ishmael is now laughing. Not with his... It's not, oh, hi, Isaac, my little baby brother. Let's play together. It's mocking you, stinking little kid. You took away everything I had. He's mocking his brother. Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn, but not Abraham's heir, mocks his little brother. Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, says that Ishmael persecuted... Isaac he's laughing mocking persecuting the true heir of the Abrahamic covenant Sarah sees this and demands that Abraham cast both Hagar and Ishmael out get him out she didn't want any possible sharing of the inheritance the inheritance goes to the child of promise Isaac now can you imagine how Abraham must have felt Ishmael was his son. For 16 years, Abraham had loved this boy. Before Isaac's birth, remember, Abraham had had begged God, can't Ishmael be before you? Can't Ishmael be my heir? Can't you work your promises through Ishmael? So I don't actually think Abraham would have listened to Sarah in this instance. He would not have cast out Isaac. I don't think he would have cast his son out if it weren't for God's command found in verse 12 and 13. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. God tells Abraham to do what Sarah asks. God tells Abraham to do an extremely difficult thing. God tells Abraham to cast out his very own son. But God also assures Abraham that he'll take care of Ishmael. God promises that that great futures are in store for both of his sons. Isaac was the one through whom the promise would be fulfilled, through who that, that, that nation of Israel would come, through the promised land would be given, and through whom all the nations would be blessed. And Ishmael would also father a great nation, God says. We need to also remember that God is working in grace and mercy here. He was dealing with, in fact, that mess created by Abraham and Sarah. Griffin Thomas says, God was taking up the tangled threads of his servant's life, weaving them into his own divine pattern, and overruling everything for good. God was working good out of Abraham's failure, out of Abraham's sin. But in the midst of God working all things for good, Abraham must experience great sorrow. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness in Beersheba. Because of Abraham's sin, he had to face the sorrow of losing his son. But God had promised to take care of Ishmael. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he's your offspring. So Abraham, trusting in God's promise, sends Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness. And again, we see that God is faithful to his promise. I'm just going to read verses 15 through 20. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And an angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy Where he is, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. Because of God's love for Abraham and Abraham's love for his son, God would take care of Ishmael. God promised that a great nation would come through him. God told Hagar that, that showed Hagar this well of water, this, this well of salvation that was close by. And God declared that he would be with the boy. God would take care of Ishmael. Now, in Galatians chapter 4, in 10 verses there, 21 through 31, Paul spells out the theological significance of this story. This story has theological implications. He says that this story, what we've just read, this tale of two sons, is is to be taken figuratively, he says. It's it's sort of a historical allegory. It's a true story, but there's allegorical principles in it. Figurative things we can learn. It has lessons for the believers. It had lessons for the church in Galatia and lessons for us. We covered this in our study of the book of Galatians, if you were with us. Just briefly, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, born according to the flesh, represents those who are under the law. Those who are seeking to get to God themselves. And Isaac, the son of the free woman, born according to the promise of God, represents, represents those who are under, under grace. Those whom God is reaching out to. Paul says that you cannot be under the law and under grace At the same time. Therefore, when grace, the promised child, arrives, you are no longer on the law under the law. Cast it out. Cast out the law. In verse 31 of of Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes this application. Therefore, brothers and sisters, us, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We are not Ishmael, we are Isaac. We are heirs to the promise of Abraham. So I hope we get the the picture there. Theological significance for, for our lives. Ishmael is cast out because he represents the works of the flesh. He represents Abraham and Sarah's efforts to fulfill the promises of God on their own. Whereas Isaac represents God's efforts to fulfill God's promises. As we, and we, like Isaac, are children of the free woman. We are God's children because of God's promise of grace through Jesus Christ. We cannot and will not ever be God's children through our own efforts. Our own efforts to fulfill the law, our own efforts to do good works, our own efforts to please the divine creator. So that's the big picture. That's the theological explanation of this story. That's the, the allegory that we see. And I pray that, that we've grabbed hold of that. I pray we grabbed hold of it in Galatians and, and we're reminded of it today. But, but as we conclude, I say that, we got a little bit more to go. But as our concluding application, I want to focus on another truth that I think we need to hear today. Something that, that we might not have grabbed hold of and I want to emphasize. Remember we said at the birth of Isaac, Abraham's faith was made solid. Solid belief. He saw the promises of God fulfilled. He became a man of unwavering belief. We said that when God fulfills his promise, it causes us to trust in him more. And that's certainly, that's certainly logical, right? As we see God work, God's working, I, I trust in him. But there's another way that God causes our faith to grow. This is a, this is a more difficult way. And I think this is seen in Abraham's life. God commands him to release his son Ishmael into God's hand. Up to this point in Abraham's life, this certainly was the hardest thing he ever had to do. Leaving Ur, a piece of cake. Giving Lot the choice of land, no problem. Rescuing Lot from those four kings, a walk in the park. Circumcising himself and his household, while physically painful, still certainly doable but sending away his 16-year-old son, son he loved, the son he had, he had wanted to be his heir. That's a different matter. I can sort of relate to Abraham in this. As Christine and I stood in a, at a train station in Lopuri, Thailand, holding our three-year-old son tightly, embracing, tears streaming down our faces, our excited seven-year-old daughter had just left for a 300 and, 60-mile journey to the north of Thailand in Chiang Mai. Once there, she would be living in in an OMF dorm. She would have great dorm parents. She would be living with other missionary kids, and we wouldn't see her for months at a time. This was definitely one of, if not the most difficult moments in my life. And it would be repeated again and again as Beth would spend the next four years attending Chiang Mai International School it would get even worse that last year when, when Michael would join her. Now, there were people who told us, Christina and I, we shouldn't send our kids away to school. Some of them even scolded us for doing such a thing. They meant well. Some had their own children and, and said they couldn't imagine ever doing such a thing. And they couldn't imagine God ever asking them to do such a thing. But what do you think? Not about us sending our kids away to school. But what do you think about God commanding his children, those he loves, to do very difficult things? He certainly gave Abraham some difficult commands. We saw one today. We're going to see another one next week. You know, I've heard people say people use difficulty or ease. It's difficult or easy in a situation to determine if it's God's will or not. That's how I'm going to determine if it's God's will. If circumstances are easy, if everything's going right, if I feel peace in my soul, then that must be what God wants, right? But if circumstances are hard, if things are going wrong, if I feel uneasy or distressed, that's the word Abraham was feeling about, that the scripture uses to talk about Abraham's feelings about sending his son away, then that, then that must be God telling me to turn around, to go another way, right? Because God loves me, and he wouldn't want me to experience pain, or, or tragedy, or suffering, right? Now we at Bridges, I, I think, for the most part, are a pretty mature group of people. I think we recognize that God allows difficult hard things into our lives. We've heard verses and understood verses like 1 Peter 5.10. After you've suffered for a little while, the suffering is assumed, by the way, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you after you've suffered a little while. That suffering is needed for me to do these things in your life. We know that God can and does use pain, tragedy, suffering in our lives. But sometimes, especially in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the the difficulty, we begin to question God's goodness, His faithfulness. We begin to question His love for us. How can a God of love allow this to happen to me? Or how can a God... of love, ask me to do something that I don't really want to do that will be so difficult. I can't even imagine how difficult it is. Something very difficult. Something that will cause me pain and suffering. How could God ever ask me to do that? I think the answer lies in the fact that often God has a very different agenda for our lives than we do. Very different goals. We naturally... Seek things like security and comfort, entertainment, fun, personal happiness. Oftentimes, we're seeking the easiest possible way to do something. How can I spend the least time at this? How can I get the easiest road to travel? Or put in spiritual terms, which we often do, we're, we're seeking the blessings of God in our life. When Abraham took Hagar as his wife and fathered Ishmael, he was seeking the fulfillment of God's promise. He was seeking God's blessing in his life. But he he didn't want to suffer the pain of, of waiting. Like Abraham, we try to shortcut the process that we might avoid suffering. But in avoiding the process, in avoiding suffering, we're avoiding the growth that that God can cause in our life. We're avoiding that perfection that he does, that confirmation, that strength, that establishing us that Peter talks about. And oftentimes, we just make a mess of things. See, God's goal is different than our goal. God's goals are long-term and they're permanent. God's goal is to grow our faith cause us to trust in him to cause us to run to him to fall down before him to worship and honor him to sanctify our lives to give us victory over sin to make us holy and righteous to give us true and lasting joy in relationship with him and to conform us into the image of his son put simply to make us more like jesus that's what god's doing in our lives And because God's goals are not our goals, God's ways are not our ways. God excels in using difficulty to refine, to transform, to renew our lives. Pastor Kent Hughes said, The abiding truth is that for every believer the frictions of adversity are used to polish the soul. King David in in Psalm 119 said some Really amazing things. He said this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Affliction, and David had many, caused David's faith to grow in such a way that he was able to keep God's word. And in verse 71 of Psalm 19, he adds, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. How many of us would say those words? As the sovereign lord, the sovereign lord. Remember God is in control. The sovereign in control lord brings difficult, painful, often tragic circumstances into our lives. How many of us would say it is good for me that I was afflicted? Now, now let me point this out. Let's give us a little a little break here. It's good to know that David is looking at past afflictions when he says it's good. I don't know if I've ever said in the midst of the, the affliction, this is good, I love this, good stuff. Keep punching me, bam, bam, oh, nice. And I'm in the midst of the difficult time, I'm usually pretty caught up in the difficulty there, but, but once it's passed, perspective can change. I can honestly say, as I look back at, it really, for me, the most difficult time in my life, when I release my children into God's hands, I can say today It was good for me that I was afflicted. Because in that hard circumstance, God caused my faith to grow in ways I couldn't have imagined. He was faithful not only to take care of my kids, but to to meet me. To meet me in my sorrow and my pain, my loneliness, my missing them. He became real to me like never before. The God of comfort will meet us in a special way in our sorrows. I mean, that only makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. He's a God of comfort. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. But when do you need comfort, grace, and mercy? When everything is going hunky-dory or when things are not going so well? God reveals His grace, His mercy, His comfort, and so much more in our times of sorrow. God will use the joys and the sorrows of our lives to transform us into the image of his son. So where's God bringing you joy first? Where is he fulfilling his promises? I I would call us to give him glory for that. Give him honor for his great faithfulness in our lives. And like Abraham, learn to trust him even deeper. That should be the easy part. The hard part is the sorrows. What difficult things is God asking you to do, commanding you to do, calling you to do? What hard circumstances is he allowing you to go through in your life? You know, we need a new perspective on the sorrows of our life, whether they're caused by our children, other people, this fallen world, our own sin. We need to understand that God is in control. That God is the sovereign creator of the universe. God knows us. And God can and will use difficult, painful things to accomplish his purpose in our lives, in the lives of his children. He'll take our sorrows, if we'll allow him, and use them to transform us into the image of his son. Let me just conclude Again, with the words of Pastor Kent Hughes as he comments on this passage, as he comments on on how God uses life, the things of this life, to transform us. Faith does not grow in a hothouse, he says, but in the unpredictable climates of life. When we believe and step out in faith to follow Christ, we step into a process in time and space under the tutelage and sovereign direction of God. A process that is meant to pour repeated mercies and graces into our lives, which then make us more and more able to rest everything in Christ, therefore live even more for his glory. As God is faithful to his promises, we experience the joy of that increased faith. But it's in the sorrows that we truly experience his grace and mercy. His grace and mercy is poured out into our lives. We come to know just how much He loves us, just how much He cares for us, through the sorrows of our life. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank You. Dear, the Almighty, Sovereign Lord above all, that You work in our lives. That every instance that You're seeking to conform us into the image of Your Son, that as your children, you love us beyond our understanding. And you know that it's through sorrows, oftentimes, that we come to know you the best. That we come to trust in you and, and cling to you and rely on you. So, Lord, I pray that, that you would give us a new perspective. That when we face challenges, difficulties, hard times, when you ask us to do things that are beyond ourselves, Lord, that we would, that we would, re- we would realize you're working. We would realize that you have great goals in mind for us. And we would trust in you with with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.